In from the pouring rain, a young kid walks in his cycling shoes, presenting himself to the manager's meeting for the UCI World Road Race Championships. Before the official had a chance to deny him, he entered the room and sat down. I, I was late. I think the map I had had disintegrated in my hands, so I, 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 was, I was late finding the event. Walked into the manager's meeting and the, the guy giving the presentation basically said, listen, this isn't a meeting for riders. Uh, you need to, to ask your manager to come. I can remember looking back at him and very quickly just saying, I'm the manager. Um, and, and just I just went and sat down. I didn't sort of wait for a response or anything. The sole representative for his country and acting as his own manager, the young kid would two days later go on to T-bone a course official in the first 100 metres of the individual time trial. The unknown kid from Kenya would also later go on to win the Tour de France four times. This week on Put Your Socks On, we sit down with Chris Froome. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as always, I am joined by Bobby Julek. Bobby, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Gus. Thanks for asking. Uh, how are you? Are you up to any other new winter sport this week in Colorado? Mate, I'm doing really well and uh, no, no uh, new sports this week, although I got up in the mountains, did a little bit of skiing, which was a, uh, an absolute treat, although there's not much snow here to be to really speak of uh but you know it was a good escape it was a good escape but this week in the news there has been quite a lot going on uh in particular with the Fizzo alumni do you care to elaborate yeah we've had some uh pretty pretty awesome guests on our show and um a lot of news actually this week starting with mark cavendish signs with Decoinit Quickstep for next year, which I know he's got to be stoked about, and uh, I know we are as well. Uh, Rod Ellingworth leaves Bahrain-McLaren, or maybe they're just called Bahrain now because McLaren had already left. So I wonder where he's going to go. We also had uh, Stuart O'Grady announcing on social media what he told us a couple weeks ago on Fizzo, that they are doing the Santos Festival of Cycling. So instead of doing the Santos Tour Down Under, they're going to have a big old, uh, what, what did he say exactly? It was an Australian term for bring your barbecue and your pickup truck, but he, you guys use a different way, a different term. I'm on the, the, the ute. Oh yeah, bring the ute, Is bring it, the ute and the barbie. Br- oh, okay. Bring the yeah, ute and the barbie, chuck a couple so, snags on, hang out, drink a beer. <laughs> exactly. Verbatim, verbatim. Uh, And our old friend Reggie Miller, uh, he's been very active on social media, and he did the quick and dirty, that was a mountain bike race, which had the equal prize list for both the men and women's event, which was pretty cool. He seemed like he had a great time there. We also have the UCI E-World Championships coming up this week. Garrett Thomas slipped on some ice and dislocated his shoulder just a word to the wise out there, people. Uh, temperatures are getting colder. Let's be a little bit careful out there. But I kind of had to second glance at that that text because 
I didn't know that there was ice already on the Côte d'Azur, but who knows? Maybe they're having a little bit of colder winter than than I remember there on the Côte d'Azur. And probably the coolest news that I heard the whole week, and this was just the last day or two, is Sherry Pridham will be the first female director sportif for none other than Israel Startup Nation, the team that Chris Froome is going to this year. Don't miss the Velo News 12 Days of Holiday Giveaways. Join Active Pass today and you're automatically entered to win exciting daily prizes from Velo News. Plus, as a bonus offer for Put Your Socks On, listeners save 25% when you join Active Pass now through December 12th. Simply visit velonews.com slash activepass. That's velonews.com forward slash activepass today. Don't miss out on your chance to win. And speaking of Chris Froome and Israel Startup Nation, that brings us to the main feature of the show today, which is a rather enlightening conversation with the man himself, Mr. Chris Froome. So after my work was done and my batteries empty during the 2007 World Championships in Stuttgart, Germany, I pulled out with a couple of laps to go and headed to the airport thinking that that was my last race as a professional cyclist. It was a strange feeling, but at that time, I was very content with my impending retirement after 15 years as a pro. Sitting in the waiting area and waiting for my flight, a tall, trim young man with a team trolley and South Africa polo shirt came up and introduced himself to me. He had finished the under-23 road race the day before and was full of bubbly energy and tons of questions. I don't know what came over me, but I suddenly felt so comfortable with this kid that I talked with him about the beautiful sport of cycling, full of its peaks and valleys, up until the final last call boarding for his flight. When this young man excused himself, shook my hand, and left, I thought to myself, I hope I didn't scare this poor kid. And what was his name again? Well, that young rider, his name was Chris Froome. Chris Froome has won four Tour de France titles, two Tour of Spain, one Tour of Italy, multiple bronze medals in the Olympic Games and the World Championships, among many other stage race victories since turning pro in 2008. But unlike other iconic riders from the past, his destiny of becoming the best stage racer of his generation was not given from day one. Chris had the deck stacked against him, but defied the odds to get where he is today, as detailed in his book, Chris Froome, The Climb. We all know the rider that we see on TV, and hopefully our listeners will get a better feel for the real Chris Froome today. Chris is currently in California preparing for the 2021 season with his wife and two children and has been gracious enough to carve out some time for us today. Welcome to Put Your Socks On, Chris Froome. Hey, Bobby. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. So how's California treating you so far? It's been fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, um, pretty pretty strange. I mean, obviously, all over the world at the moment, there's there's a lot of restrictions and a lot of lockdowns going on at the moment. I, I thought coming over to California, I'd be relatively unscathed over here, but it, it seems seems to be going more and more in the direction of, of a full lockdown over here as well. But having said that, it's it's been great. I mean, great to be out here in the sunshine. I mean, great weather, if, if I compare it with, with over in Europe at the moment. Good people around here and um, easy, easy to be putting in the big miles. 
And and you also stopped off before you were in California. You were staying in Florida for a while. Did you guys get to visit uh, Disney World or any fun stuff with the kids? Yeah, hundred percent. So um, I went over to to Miami. There was a there was a charity event with the Best Buddies crew out there. So we did we did that event, and I I took took a couple of days afterwards to take the kids up to to Disneyland. They'd never never done anything like that, and they're they're kind of at that age now, two years and five years old where they're, they're really into Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all of that. So that was that was a great experience, just spent a couple of days, um, especially after a pretty long season. And tell me, you come out to the US quite a bit. What do you look forward to when you visit? What brings you out here? More than anything, it's, a, it's just a bit of a change of scenery. I mean, I've been coming over every year, mainly to Miami, to, to do the, the charity events with Best Buddies. But I mean, I, I have trained out in, in Colorado. I've, um, this is my first time coming to, to California to train. I'd, I'd done the tour of California before. I'd obviously seen what the roads are like out here. But it just seems like a great environment to be able to get the work done, especially at this time of year where it's quite challenging over in Europe, especially to get the, the altitude meters in. Also, another big, big part of my decision in, in coming over here was uh, being able to, to work quite hard on the, the rehab sort of strength off-bike side of things that, that I need to focus on this next month. I'm, I'm going into the, the, the Red Bull Performance Center every other day here, doing sessions in there, and um, I, that's, that's obviously a big focus for me right now in, in getting back to my, my full strength, hopefully for, for next season. And how long are those sessions that you do at the, the Red Bull facility there? Is it like just a little bit or are you talking like as a full training session per, per day or every other day what i'm doing i'm doing about four sessions four sessions of about an hour an hour and a half a week at the moment so yeah pretty much every other day and then putting in my my training on the bike afterwards so at the moment that that's really the focus for me i mean i think this this season it would it became apparent to me came clear to me that i was definitely missing some strength that the rehab side of things still needed some more work and um, I was missing a bit of muscle mass on, on that right side that I, that I injured last year. So I think this is a perfect opportunity for me now to, to really focus on that, that gym work and that strength side of things and really focus on that and, and try and nail that before the serious stuff starts leading into next season. Yeah, uh, the next season is right around the corner. But before we get to that, let's, let's back up a little bit because my my goal my vision of of having you on today is to get people to understand you because we we don't really get to see that much of you or your real your your personality because it's it's you know you're such a professional and so strict and so busy all the time so being raised in Kenya by british parents wasn't really the fast track to the top echelon of professional cycling Tell us a little bit about how you got into cycling and who initially helped you find the passion for the sport. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, obviously, growing up, you can imagine, uh, as, a, as a kid, British kid, growing up in Kenya, I, I wasn't even aware of the Tour de France. Uh, I don't think they even broadcast it over there when, when I was growing up. Or even if they did, I, I certainly wasn't really aware of it as a, as a kid growing up. I was, I was always outdoors. I was always out riding my own little... BMX around or collecting snakes or trying to looking for animals or just it, it just being a kid really um I, I just wasn't aware of the whole world of professional cycling and I mean one thing was for sure I, I loved riding my bike I was always on my bike but it was never about training it was more about just 
getting around, going exploring, having fun, doing trips, jumps, uh, all that kind of stuff. On I, I just love being on my bike. Eventually, I got a mountain bike, which which made getting around easier than than being on a BMX. I think I must have been about about fourteen. 1415 where there was this i, I think there's one bicycle race a year in in, in kenya and, and that came around and obviously loving being on my bike I, I think it was my mother said to me listen why, why don't you go and take part in this this bicycle race and, and see how you do and I, I think i pitched up with my trainers and my my mountain bike and i don't know what it was i think it was like a 80 80k uh, road race. Um, I obviously entered the the junior category or whatever it was uh, for kids at that at that point, and and off I went. And I I loved it. I, I just thought it was it was great. Um, I, I I loved the the experience of. <laughs> Sorry, getting interrupted there. Um, I'll give that a second. Let <laughs> it go down that hallway. I, I love the experience. I love the experience of being in a race. I can't even remember where I finished. I, I think there were probably only five five kids I was racing against. And I, I don't think I saw any of them after a few Ks. I think we were all just so spread out all over the place. But it was it, it was it was my first event, my first race, and it wasn't it wasn't too much longer after that. I went down to school in South Africa, down to boarding school and discovered that cycling obviously was it was a much bigger sport down there cycling in south africa was i mean there were, there were weekly events uh, every weekend there was there was an event in in um, all the major cities and it was quite easy to sort of progress through cycling's ranks and i started going to those events where you just pitch up and you're just one of one of a couple thousand people competing and and then actually getting more into the racing side of things as 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 i got older but all the time and I think that that was the period that I started to become sort of more aware of professional cycling and the Tour de France and what was happening in Europe. And that very quickly became the goal for me. As soon as I'd sort of recognized that that's, that's where the top level of professional cycling is, that that became my my passion. And but one thing that all the way through that sort of bothered me was that there I was out in Africa. And I mean, it doesn't matter if, if I won every single race I went to, it wasn't going to get me noticed to, to get onto the European scene. It was just a huge challenge to try and get to Europe. And I, I couldn't really figure out a, how, how to bridge that gap, really. So, I mean, I, I think the first, first steps I took were to try and get myself ready and adapt myself for European racing. The races I was doing, the, the longest race I was doing, I think was about 100, 120 kilometers. And I knew that in Europe, they're racing over 200 kilometers. So the first thing I did was start doing the races. The races were at stupid o'clock in the morning, like five o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning. I'd do the, the 100, 120 kilometer race and I'd go and do 100 kilometers of training afterwards to try and adapt myself to be ready for these longer events that should I get the chance to, to race in Europe. And I, I very much just from a, I guess, younger age of 17, 18, I, I took that mindset of I'm going to prepare myself to be ready for European racing. And I was actually, I was, I was terrible at, at the races that I was racing in, in South Africa. They were, they were 100, 120 kilometer races. Most of them finished in a sprint. And I don't think I won a single one. There was no sort of promise that you, you're good enough to be a professional here. I was getting beaten every week. 
obviously, I mean, I wasn't a sprinter. I didn't have that sort of explosive engine that you'd need to, to win that kind of an event. But all the way through, I think I just kept this sort of belief and this passion to know that if I got over to Europe, the racing style would suit me a lot better. It would be mountainous. It would be a lot more of an endurance game being over 200 Ks. And that sort of became my focus. And I think it must have been, I can't remember which year exactly, maybe 2007 or six. I got the chance to go to the world championships and compete for Kenya as an under 23 cyclist. That, that's got a funny story in itself. I wasn't, I didn't get entered through the normal channels. Let's put it that way. Um, I basically figured out a way to, to impersonate being the, the president of the Kenyan cycling federation. And I emailed the UCI saying that we wanted to, to enter, uh, under 23 cyclists into, into the race into the race this year the uci came back and said sure yeah you, you can you can enter a rider just send his details and um basically you're in but then i, I obviously had to find find the sponsorship to get get the funds to to fly over there and i i found a found a little airbnb close to the close to the circuit where i, I thought it's perfect i'll just fly over on my own take my tt bike my road bike and enter both those races and that was in um in Salzburg, uh, in Austria, I think <laughs> it was, it's just such a comedy of, uh, I mean, I look back at it now and I just think, I, I can't believe what I did. And I, I, I think it just, I must've just been so motivated. And I was so like determined that this was going to be the way I was going to turn pro was by getting to the world championships under 23 world championships and showing people what I could do there. Just rewinding a step. I mean, I, I had reached out to the Kenyan cycling federation and sort of said, listen, are you guys sending a team to the world championships this year? And obviously their, their response was like, no, we, we don't send people to the world championships kind of thing. So that, that was what sort of prompted me to, to get in touch with the UCI and take, take it upon myself to, to get myself into the race. Anyway, I, I made my way over to, to Salzburg. I think I caught a, caught a bus to, to get to the, the, uh, at least the town where the BMB was. You can imagine two bike bags and a suitcase, like this, just this, like young kid getting over to Europe for his first time and just sort of figuring things out on my own. And I can remember one of the funniest sort of, um, moments from from that trip was going to the manager's meeting i didn't have any transport or anything so obviously i, I rode there on my on my bike i'd unpacked my tt bike first because the tt bike was, was in two days time or whatever i'd ridden ridden to the manager's meeting and it was pouring with rain it was it was just like thundering down with rain i walked into the room like completely drenched I, I was late. I think the map I had had disintegrated in my hands, so I, 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 was, I was late finding the event. Walked into the manager's meeting, and the, the guy giving the presentation basically said, listen, this isn't a meeting for riders. Uh, you need to, to ask your manager to come. I can remember looking back at him and very quickly just saying, I, I'm the manager. Um, and and just, I just went and sat down. I didn't sort of wait for a response or anything. I went and sat down at the back of the room sat there, got all the information I needed of where I needed to be at the right times and the sort of the, the pack of the race pack of all the details and everything. Got myself into uh, ready for the, the, the time trial in, in a couple of days time. I can remember, I, I mean, obviously I didn't have a turbo train or anything with me. So I went and did my warm up on the road, got myself there for the, the TT and got down the start ramp and was trying to press start on, on the, the head unit that I had. And uh, 
I can't remember what was what went wrong, but I, I remember that, that that took my attention for the first sort of fifty meters. I didn't really realize the the first corner that I had coming up. I didn't didn't see which way it went. If it was left or right, and there was a guy standing right in the middle of the road, uh, sort of directing the riders which way to go, and I just went smack straight into him. I can remember just feeling like you've got to be kidding. Like I've 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 gone through all of this trying to get here, and after a hundred meters, I've just crashed straight into a commissaire in the middle of the road. Um, it just felt like it was just the, the most, I, I, I just felt so embarrassed. I can remember getting, getting up as quickly as I could. And I mean, I, I carried on. I think I did a, a decent time trial. I think I, I came sort of 30th or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was my first, first race in Europe. A couple of days later, I did the road race. I finished in the, in the front group. Uh, which, which to me was was a was a big achievement. Um, I think there were probably like fifty guys coming to the line. I can't actually remember who who won it, but it was it was a bunch sprint basically of, of about fifty guys. So I was, I was in there somewhere. Yeah, just just such an such an experience. That was that was basically my my welcome to to European racing. I tell you one thing. I had both those stories in my notes because they they are classic. But that for most people would have been tail between the legs, this sport is not for me, I'm going home. But there was something in you that said, wait a second, this is, this is not going to be the last that people hear about me. And the, uh, World Tour directors, National Federation directors, still to this day, talk about you walking in your cycling shoes, soaking wet through that, through that meeting, and sitting down and now they get to look and you know have that Chris Froome story. So I want to fast forward a little bit to Barlow World. So Barlow World, tell us a little bit about those early days at Barlow World because when you go back and look at the guys that were on that roster, I yourself, Garrett Thomas, Daryl Impey, Robbie Hunter, Steve Cummings, John Lee Augustan. I mean, you guys had a really good team and for me that was the first time I remember seeing you in the Tour de France. It was the stage that John Lee Augustin actually crashed on that descent, and it looked like he was going off the, the end of the moon there. But, I mean, you've come a long way since then, but what was it like going from your humble upbringings and your struggles to actually being in the Tour de France with a team like that, with, with teammates like that? I mean, it, it was just such a, just like, it, it was inductive sort of, induction by fire in a way it was just it was i was thrown in the deep end it was what i wanted but i i mean i can remember as, as a first of all arriving in italy uh for the first time obviously as an italian team i i think they they had me staying pretty close to where the the service course was which was in in northern italy i can remember arriving there in january and i'd never seen snow before and now i mean i've got a prepare for the season doing five six hours a day and it's it's barely breaking zero degrees it was it was freezing i can remember that just being in a whole whole experience in itself just trying to sort of adapt to trying, trying to find a place to live trying to just set myself up in europe i guess and trying to learn a completely different language i mean okay i had some some english-speaking teammates but at the same time all the directors all the managers uh, they were all speaking Italian and it was basically sort of, well, you've got to, you've got to learn to speak Italian. And that, that first year, I mean, I, I think I, I did all our dance classics. I did, I did Paris-Roubaix on, on the back of doing a 200k 
cobble race the day before as well. It was it was really like it was just this sort of experience that yeah I think I learned pretty quickly what professional racing was all about. But I, it was just a uh, it just felt every it felt like every week I was sort of pinching myself with with something new like just to uh, it felt as if I was in this little dream in a way. Unfortunately, my my mother passed away a few weeks before the Tour de France as well. So I'd, I'd flown home. Uh, see my family and um, sort of go go through go through that process with them. And I can remember getting the call. I think it must have been less than two weeks before the start of the Tour de France. Ciao, Froome. Yeah, you're in the Tour de France. You you have to you have to be ready. And that sort of snapped me snapped me back into training again and sort of back into normal swing of life again pretty quickly. And I was over over to the start of the Tour de France and. That Tour de France was just a, a whirlwind of uh, of a learning curve as well. I mean, it was just a, a crazy tour in every aspect. Um, it was a 2008 Tour de France where uh, Ricardo Rico and the whole of Sonia Duval were, were taken out. My own teammate on Barlow World, Moses Duñez, a Spanish guy, he was taken out uh, as positive on EPO as well. It was just, I, I didn't, I was like, wow, what? What have I? What have I got in, involved in? I mean, this sport is. Um, I, I thought I'd come in at a really good time, but obviously that was a that was a huge eye opener for me at the same time. And then you go, I guess, you know, from from Barlow World Tour de France first time two thousand and eight, and then Team Sky, the rumblings start happening two thousand and nine, and then we see Team Sky in in two thousand and ten. What were your initial thoughts and feelings, I guess, about you know coming on board with that new team? You know, Dave Brailsford's approach to you know to running how he ran a team and to the sport and then of course obviously their really ambitious goals um, of winning the Tour de France with a British rider which at that time seemed pretty wild right did you believe it was possible what was your sort of initial reactions and feelings about that team and about getting involved I mean um, joining Team Sky in 2010 that that was that was amazing I mean it was it was chalk and cheese even though it was a it was a new team. It was chalk and cheese with what I had uh, been used to at, at Barlow World. I'd only been there two years, but I mean, it, it was—I mean, it was a great team. It gave me all the opportunities and everything, but it, it wasn't Team Sky. Uh, and the way things were run at Team Sky, you could see everything was was planned out. There was there was a lot of support that that I just wasn't used to, and that was that was motivating for me. It's incredibly motivating. It, it made me feel as if I had all, all the tools that I needed to to really get the best out of myself. So that was that that was that was fantastic. I mean, a huge huge step in in my career, and I think it only it took me just over a year to really uh, obviously doing some of the races with with the guys like Bradley Wiggins, who was earmarked to to win the Tour de France. I mean, that that was a that was a big big and ballsy goal for the team pretty early on. Yeah, I mean. 2011 obviously was was my that was the break breakthrough year for me. Started started working with Bobby, started training with Bobby. I'm sure you've got some some cool stories from those days, Bobby, and uh, all the all the hours following on a scooter and out on the roads and all the different training sessions. But I think we 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 basically we got myself to a really good point, and that yeah that 2011 season was uh, was was where I I certainly found my potential as a GC rider and um, I mean I, I went to that Vuelta very much with the idea of being there for Bradley in the mountains but when I when I'd done that and I sort of 
looked around and sort of felt, okay, I, I can do this. I, I can be with these guys in the mountains and I'm doing it day after day. So why, why can't I ride GC? And I think that was, that was the first time I really started to believe in myself. But, but let's, let's back up a little bit because that almost didn't happen also. Because towards the end of 2010, you were diagnosed with a condition called Bulharzia. For our listeners out there that don't know what this condition is, g- give us a brief little history of, of what, what Bilharzia actually does to the human body. So, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, I, I found that once I joined Team Sky in 2010, I, I was getting into this sort of a, this pattern of training really hard, going through a period where, where things would be going well, I'd be get, get a good couple of months of training in, start to get into really good race shape and then bang i'd get sick and just like but but not not like chronically sick but just having like a cold i'd be chesty i'd be sort of all all bunged up in my nose just just like a cold like a common cold but for for an for an athlete and especially an asthmatic i mean that was that that would mean i'd I'd have to stop basically stop training and stop training for a week 10 days and then start again, and I'd, I'd build up, have two good months again, and then bang, I'd, I'd get this sort of cold again. And I just, I couldn't figure out why I, I kept on getting sick. And I, I thought maybe I'm, maybe I'm overtraining, maybe I'm pushing the diet too much, uh, maybe I'm just pushing my immune system too far with, with basically the demands that it takes to, to try and try and try and be a better better professional cyclist. And I think I'd gone back to, to South Africa at the end of 2010 to go and see, go and see my family and friends. And while I was out there, I, I just went for a sort of a full medical check, go and do a whole load of blood tests and just, just see if everything was all right. Because I mean, I had this really frustrating season where um, I must have been two or three times. I'd get to a good point where I'd, I'd reach like an objective of mine and bang, I'd get sick. So I went and did, did this sort of full medical screening and fortunately doing it out in South Africa, one of the things that they screen for is Bill Hartsia. I mean, it's, uh, it's very common out there. You basically just have to come into contact. You can just have to touch water that's, that's been in, infected or uh, standing still and has, has the parasite in it. And, um, yeah, and they, they, they found a, a very high reading of, of Bill Hartsia in my system, which would indicate that it had been there for for a long time. And so it was basically, yeah, the, the winter of 2010, I think, that, that I first started my treatments of uh, taking just a, it's like a pill that kills, kills everything in your system and you feel a bit lousy for a day or two. But I, I did have to repeat that a few times just to completely get rid of, get rid of the Bill Hartsia I had. I can remember going for checks, uh, I think I had to go for checks every every three or six months thereafter, and then a couple of times we we had to repeat it. I definitely, yeah, having having found that, I I no longer kept on going into that same sort of pattern of getting sick and, and then um, that that whole routine again. After that event, you went from being a worker on the team, another guy, just another guy in like a, a grand tour to grand tour winning potential to you know an exceptional athlete. I'm interested to hear for you. In the months after that result, in the in the approach to the to the, the following season, the twenty twelve season, what changed both in you, in your confidence, in you know, in your objectives, um, but also too just in the world around you and and how you were kind of, you know, viewed by the team and by by your competitors. 
I think going into that 2012 season, that was definitely a moment where, okay, at the time, I'd, I'd just come second in the Vuelta Espana. Going into the 2012 season, I had a lot more confidence. I was like, listen, I, I, I did this already for three weeks. I, I know I'm physically capable of doing it. And that, that gave me a lot of confidence. I think that 2012 season was obviously, a, I mean, that, that 2012 Tour de France ended up being uh, uh, also an amazing sort of chapter of my career, I guess. Coming second to Bradley Wiggins, helping him as much as I could along the way. I mean, that was that was a colourful experience, and obviously um, I learned a lot there as well. Um, but I think it, it it inevitably did did prepare me for for what was to come in in, in following seasons in 2013, when when I felt like um, I had my my first sort of chance at leadership at the Tour de France. I I took it with with both hands and gave it absolutely everything I had. And yeah, I think all the listeners know what happened from 2011 until 2019. I mean, you were incredibly successful. You won the Tour de France four times. That Tour of Spain second place got upgraded to a first place. And, and you won the Giro with like this amazing, like desperate last minute penultimate stage attack in 2018. But we want to kind of get to the Dauphiné in 2019. But before we do that, looking back at that period without diving into every single event, was the, what was the special memory that stands out among all others? Was it was it that that first tour win? Was it that 2018 Giro? Just just curious for a guy that's won as many races, is there any one that you put above the other? Um hmm. interesting question. Yeah, I I think Certainly that, that first tour win was, I'd say, I mean, that's an experience that especially when sort of becoming a professional cyclist and, and getting into the sport has become, it's sort of consumed my life, especially my early part of my life there from, from being, uh, from, from being a late teenager, I guess, all the way, all the way into my sort of almost 30, 30s. Winning that first Tour de France was just, it put, put everything back into perspective for me. Sort of, it made me reflect on, I guess, all the, that whole journey to, to getting there. And that to me really did feel as if that, that was a, that was a huge benchmark, I guess, in, in my life. And, and like I said, I don't want to get too deep into it because you were on the, the men from this, but can you, Tell us, tell our listeners and, and Gus and I as well, the, the injuries that you have to be, that you, that you had in the, in that, I'm sorry, the recon of the, the Dauphiné time trial in 2019. You know, I was told by your coach, Tim Carrison, that Froomey's on the best condition he's ever had, which was hard for me to believe because you had been at that top condition for a long time, but it was very obvious that you were going very well. But what were those injuries that, that you're having to rehab even today, you you just got back from rehab. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I just got back from a from a gym session now, and uh, I mean that was so. Basically, what happened is, I mean, I, I went into went into a wall with the right side of my body um, at close to sixty kilometers an hour, and my my legs and my and the bike basically they didn't hit the wall; they went around the wall. But up until my sort of my thigh upwards, that that hit the wall. Um, so my leg basically snaps just above the kneecap uh, and there was uh, another uh, fracture on the top of the femur um, by the trochanter uh, so so close to the hip basically 
from the from the impacts on the wall. So that was that was on the leg, and then um, I fractured my elbow. I fractured my sternum. I fractured a few ribs. I had a collapsed right lung. I fractured uh, vertebra on my back, and uh, also a, a hairline fracture in in my my neck. So I mean, it was a it was a full full list of of breaks there. And um, I mean, I was, I was incredibly incredibly fortunate that I didn't go into that wall headfirst. I mean, that that my my body took most of the brunt because I, I think an impact like that. I, I probably wouldn't have survived if I'd if I'd gone headfirst into that wall. And I think, I mean, that's you know, there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff as you just alluded to, right? Like that 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 accident was horrific, but it could have been even worse. And and I think, you know, from the outside, the world watched. And as you recovered from that injury, and then you you know you were back on the bike in in Japan right by the end of the year. I think that was surprising for everyone, but also at the same time. Probably not that much of a surprise, given that it's it's you. What about that? What parts of the rehab process? And I know, as you just mentioned, you're still in that process. What surprised you um, in terms of how difficult that process was? Like, what things did you not expect to be so hard? Be that mentally, be that physically, um, in that process. So I, I think as as soon as I was basically told by my surgeons and the doctors that that I would. Be a, I would be able to make a full recovery, that I could recover from all these injuries. Then it put out any sort of doubt in my mind about, is this the end of my career? Am I going to try try and get back to this? Am I going to keep going on, basically? And I think as soon as I had that all clear from the doctors that, listen, there's, there's nothing here that you can't recover from, it, it became simple that this was almost, I need to approach this the same way I do my training, that I need to put in my whatever i mean from from when you wake up in the morning till you go to sleep at night you've got to dedicate that time to trying to trying to get yourself back to to where i was and i i think that mindset really really helped me get through those first few months and it was just like being at a training camp even though it was very different and i was just i mean at least for the first 6 weeks i was flat on my back in a in a hospital bed it it was I was doing rehab every day, even if it was two hours of ankle raises and then physio and whatever. I mean, it was just uh, whatever movements I was allowed to do, I'd, I'd do them as much as possible to try and increase the circulation and try and increase the healing and try and try and get, get that leg strength back. So in terms of the, the metal work that I had in my leg, I had a, a big rod straight down the middle of my femur from basically up at my hip down to my knee and that rod i've still got i've still got today there were two screws down by the knee and two screws up by the hip holding that in place um i recently just a couple of weeks ago just removed a couple of screws that were down down near the knee i've been feeling a little bit of an irritation in my quad and i, I think that could have been coming from the screws so feels feels good to have those out now and that's that's definitely something that hopefully going into next season will um Will mean that I'm I'm less uh, less less held back, I guess, from from that side of things. I I also had quite a big plate on on my hip for, for the fracture that was um, that was up near my hip, and that 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 plate was was a big piece of metal work. And I think I'm definitely still missing quite a bit of strength around that sort of my my my, my glutes and my the, the the sort of 
around my hip, basically. Um, so I'm doing a lot of a lot of those kind of stability exercises, a lot of exercises still on my quads, trying to pick up that muscle strength again. So that's that's a big big focus for me, especially this month now before the the, the stuff on the road starts getting obviously more and more uh, the priority. And then talking about like the road and, and, and racing, right? That this year, you know, we watched you you race throughout the year and very much justified but it wasn't the chris room that we've seen in the past for pretty obvious reasons i think how is that on a personal level being in races where you know you've been dominant you've been the best right and you watch these guys that you're normally going toe-to-toe with right up the road you know you're in a different part of the peloton that you probably haven't really been in for quite a while how like i guess how was that as an experience and then also too like how do you overcome that i know you just said that when you were told you could come back to full capacity, um, that you were like, okay, I can do this. But like, you know, that's different to being in, in a race when, when it, you're suffering, right? Um, I, yeah, how, like what kept you going? What keeps you going? 100%. I mean, this, this year, I, I think, especially the, the way I approached it mentally was that I'm, I'm back racing, but I, I, I'm not even going to put my expectations anywhere near performing the way I was before. I mean, I think only only I can fully comprehend what I've what I've been through the last last few uh, last year basically. And I think a lot of people from the outside saw that. Okay, here's Chris Froome. He's back on a bike again. And and I think a lot of people probably expected me just to be my old self again. But people didn't really know necessarily what what I've been through and how much time I I, I couldn't even bend bend my leg for for months uh, after the accident so i mean e- even to walk again took me best part of four or five months after the accident just to be able to get on my legs and, and walk to the kitchen on my own um so stuff like that i don't think people necessarily understand how badly i was injured in that sense so this year i mean just being back racing again that felt like a, a huge victory for me and even though i knew i wasn't going to be up up, up at the front, at the sharp end of the race. Just being there and being in the race and getting the miles in, getting that race intensity in that, that I've obviously missed so much of uh, with, with all the time out. I, I just felt as if I was, I was lapping it all up and really, really enjoying it, really. Um, and it, it also, in a way, was I, I enjoyed seeing the other side of the sport that I, I, I haven't necessarily been aware of or even uh, sort of part of for for the last last few years since i've been winning winning grand tours i mean being part of that gruppetto where you you do a job for your team leader and from that point to the finish you're just trying to get to the finish uh, and just just finishing the race and being able to chat to other guys for the first time i mean obviously when you're up front racing you're racing you're focused you're racing you're not you're not really necessarily chatting to anyone or you don't have that same camaraderie that, that you do back in the back in the Gruppetto where you're, you're helping each other out with a bottle or a gel or a Mars bar or whatever it is, Coke, getting the guys to the finish. It, it sort of opened my eyes to the other side of the sport that um, I, I haven't, haven't experienced for a very long time. Well, we, we were lucky enough to have your new boss, Sylvain Adams, come talk with us here on Put Your Socks On very soon after it announced that you decided to sign with Israel Startup Nation. I'm sure that you had a lot of things that weighed into your decision to leave the team that, that you started with, that you helped build into the powerhouse that it is today. But what was it that sealed the deal? And 
I guess what would define success to you in in this new team with, with Sylvan and and the Israel Startup Nation team? The offer from from Israel was was really interesting, given that it was a relatively new team. They they had this to me. It was almost as if it was an offer to come in and use a lot of the experience that I've I've gained over the years of racing Grand Tours to to build a team. I don't want to say from scratch because I don't want to disrespect the the, the team as it stands now. But in terms of a, a Grand Tour GC type capacity, that that's what it feels like like we're doing. We're almost starting with a blank piece of paper to to build a, a GC team and to target. Grand Tours going forward, and um, that to me just sounded like a really exciting project. There's a there's a great group of people there to work with, and I guess something that that sort of was like interesting to me about that process, right, is you've been a leader of 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 Ineos or Team Sky for a very long time, but being a leader of that team, right, you you became a leader when when they had, you know, you'd won the Tour de France, and and the team was was somewhat established, right. Being a leader in this new outfit, as you just said, it's a blank sheet of paper. You're very much involved in in setting up what it is that this team that this team isn't is going to be, and I guess sort of forming that legacy, right? Uh, I guess how do you approach the leadership role differently in this new endeavor? I mean, it, it is completely different for me. I mean, it, it's having the opportunity to to be involved in in discussions around recruitment, for example. That I'd never, never really been part of uh, previously in my career. Recruitment, uh, I mean, even team management um, to, to an extent. And it's especially, I think, where where I am at in my career. I mean, yes, I, I still want to be up there with the best in the world, perform at the highest level again. I mean, that's that's my ultimate goal is to get back there. I mean, it's no secret. I I, I really want to get to at least five Tour de France victories o- over the next few years and. Um, starting starting in 2021, I mean that's that's going to be my my biggest goal. But I think it's yeah, it, it's going to be a, a very exciting dynamic, I guess, especially given the way professional cycling is now. I mean, we've got a lot of really young, talented guys performing incredibly at the moment. I'm coming back from a from a big injury. There's, there's, there are no guarantees that that I'll I'll get there, but I'm I'm certainly gonna gonna give it everything I've got, and um, I'm not gonna give up trying. And also the the dynamic between the teams. I mean, we've got Jumbo Visma, um, who just incredible this year. I mean, they they looked like the old Team Sky that 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 I knew. Um, we've got Ineos, who have got an abundance of 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 GC GC leaders. Um, and, and multiple cards to play as well. So um, it's it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting race and getting back into it. And it's uh, it's quite a quite a fun dynamic in a way. Uh, it should, should make for for great racing. You just mentioned the the young riders, that young generation, and we all know now that with winning the biggest races in the world, you're going to be put in the crosshairs of both the fans and the haters, whether you like it or not. Yourself your team, your family, your country, whatever. But it's been pretty well documented the the crap that you've had to deal with over the years by being so successful. So with, with so many of these new young riders in the sport starting to win the world's biggest races so young, with your experience and and what would be your advice, I guess, to them, having lived through this pressure cooker of being the most successful stage racer of, of your generation? 
my biggest word of advice, to, especially to the to the younger guys who have started already winning the biggest races. I mean, guys like Egan, guys like Bogacha this year, is not to get drawn into into the the circus of it all because I mean that that's what it is. You, you win a Tour de France and you get to the end of the season and everyone wants a piece of you. I mean, you're being invited to so many different events. You're, you're being pulled in so many different directions and it's very easy to lose, lose sight of how you actually got to that point where you're able to win a Tour de France and all the, all the training and the small things you do just somehow fall, fall by the wayside when, when you're being pulled in so many different directions. So the one thing that I think I've, I've done pretty well over the years is, is getting, getting to the end of the season is maybe it's been that maybe it's been a big reason that I necessarily haven't I'd say capitalized on on my my victories um but I've got to the end of the season and instead of going going out and doing all chasing all kinds of commercial deals and uh being pulled in so many different directions I've, I've kind of just shut my shut my doors to everything and just carried on doing what I've done in the first place to to get that victory and sort of carrying on with the trainings, carrying on with the same work ethic that I've, I've had over the years. And I, I think that's, especially for, for guys who are so young in the sport, 21, 22 years old, it's, it's easy to get pulled, pulled off track um, and, and sort of lose their direction. So if, any, if I can give any advice, it'd just be stick to what you're doing and try not to change, change that. And the last question that I have, have for you, Chris, I saw you last year at the when Kipchoge ran the sub sub two hour marathon. That was incredible. It, it was it was <laughs> it was unbelievable, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm a, a huge fan, and that was I mean just the every element of that, all the technical elements and and everything. Just to see that was really uh, was was quite uh, inspiring, but just interesting. Um, anyway, the question I have is. Do you pull inspiration, information, you know, kind of ideas from other sports and other athletes outside of cycling? I, I, I really don't follow uh, another sport that closely enough to really, I guess, uh, be, uh, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe I should, maybe I could learn quite, quite a, quite a few things from, from other sports. I'm sure I could. Um, but I, I, I just, I, I almost feel as if, I'm so consumed and so sort of in a moment of, of what I'm doing that I, 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 I don't really have the, the extra time to, to get involved or get, follow other sports closely enough in, in that sense. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. But one thing I want you to think about, and I know that it's a few, few years d down the road, but it's never too early to start thinking about what you're going to say to that young kid that introduces himself to you at the airport on the way home from your last race. So, you know, I, that was a, a story that, that obviously um, was very special to, to me. And, and, you know, hopefully you can play that on because you are a very inspirational person in the sport. I hope that today conveys to our listeners that, you know, this didn't just fall in your lap. You had to work for this and you continue to work for this up until this exact moment. So, Thank you, thank Michelle, thank the kids for letting us uh, take some of your time up out of your out of your day in the beautiful U.S. of A. Awesome, thanks so much, Bobby. And I mean, I, I have to admit, I've actually did 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 make me start to feel old during the Vuelta España this year, where 
couple 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 of the younger guys did come up to me and sort of say, you know, sort of geeking out in a little bit little bit of a way and saying, yeah, you know, when I was when I was thirteen, fourteen, I was I was watching your Tour de France victories and that that really motivated me to start cycling and I was just like, oh no, <laughs> how old am I? <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I definitely, especially meeting you back in that airport. I mean, that was that was a big moment for me. I mean, I'd I'd, I'd watched the Overcoming movie, and you were obviously you were in that. So I was like, oh my God, that's that's Bobby Julik, and I can remember going up, being so nervous to go over and speak to you, um, but just being pleasantly surprised at, at how sort of easy it was to talk to you. And uh, I'd, I'd like to think that at least at least I can I can do the same for a lot of younger guys coming into the sport now. You absolutely have. Thanks again, Chris. We appreciate it. Nice one, guys. Cheers. Thanks a lot. And that's it. That's all we have time for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks again to Chris Froome for joining us. You can find all of our past episodes, as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. Please continue to listen, like, and subscribe at whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. We appreciate your support and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can get at us on social media, Pod on Twitter, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D, at that is Gus and at Bobby.Julik on Instagram. Please reach out to us there. Give us feedback, suggestions. Just say good day, whatever you want. Until next week, thank you so much for listening. My name is Angus Morton. And I'm Bobby Julik, reminding you to stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on.